All right, guys, well, we finally come to the end of this biblical parenting crash course, and we've covered a lot of ground. We began by studying the scriptures and establishing what the Bible says about the principles of biblical parenting. And then we spent several weeks now transitioning to the, the practice of biblical parenting. There's one little patch of ground that we left unaddressed, though, and that's namely uh, teenagers, how to parent uh, teenagers. And this is the, the final subject we've saved for tonight. Tonight's lesson will be a continuation, really, of our lesson from last week, where we began applying everything we've learned about parenting to the different stages of childhood. It's great to learn about parenting on paper, but really trying to put it into practice is another thing. And then you add to that the rapidly changing nature of our children, and it it makes it all the more uh, difficult. And not just physically, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually, they're just changing a lot. That doesn't change our mission, but it does change a bit how we implement it, how we go about raising them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so last time we covered how to apply what we learned about parenting to the first stage of our children's lives. That would be infancy to childhood, ages zero through five. It's a time of unprecedented change and challenges, but also opportunities. Then we moved on to the main stages, or main stage of childhood, ages 6 through 12, the elementary years where their character is rapidly forming. And this this is prime time. But we saved the the third stage for last, that we might devote an entire lesson to it. And that's tonight, which will focus on teens age 13 to 18 or thereabouts. That'll be our topic for this evening. And I have to confess that before becoming a parent, I was pretty much guilty of viewing the teenage years like those in the world, namely, hopeless. There's such a great fear about the teenage years, like they're all Dr. Jekyll. But once they turn 13, they they morph, they're a victim of hormones, and they invariably turn into Mr. Hyde. And perhaps we feel this way because we've seen it so many times, we start to believe it's inevitable, it just can't be helped. Now, there's nothing you can do about it as a parent. You're locked in, trepidation sets in, your your only hope becomes just to survive these years, you kind of buckle down. Pray for the best. Other parents have the spiritual gift of discouragement, and they let you know how bad it's going to be. And they they feed into your fears based on their experience. Tell you to just prepare for the worst and hang on tight. And if you make it out alive, that's a win. You're just trying to physically survive. And at the same time, the culture around us has a very pessimistic and deterministic view of the teen years. That teens are just reduced to mere victims of their hormones. We all know this is an age where youths face great biological changes, and yeah, hormones do play a part. But this has led to the belief that they can't be reached, they can't be helped. Teenage rebellion is the inevitable consequence of raging hormones, and this cynical, pessimistic view of the teen years has infiltrated the church, where some in the church might say, yeah, we believe in the gospel and God's word as power to radically change lives, Unless you're between the ages of 13 and 18, then you're kind of out of luck. There's no hope for you. God's word can't reach you. It is true that in various stages of life, from the teenage years to menopause for women, for example, hormones and biological factors can influence our behavior. But our behavior as humans is incredibly complex. It's never determined purely by biology. And at the end of the day, we're still making choices. And so we can and should be held accountable for those choices. And at the same time, God's word is powerful. His gospel and his word can reach and change anyone at any stage of life, teens included. And so you have to just first break free from the negative, fearful view of the teenage years and replace that pessimism with optimism. You have to see these as years of opportunity opportunity to shepherd and to engage, to ask questions you never could ask before, to have discussions you could never have before, to plant the gospel deeper than you ever could before. And speaking of opportunity, I do want to here plug another excellent parenting book, specifically meant for the the teenage years. And I will again be drawing on some insight, some wisdom from this resource for our study tonight. It's from the other, happens to be from the other Tripp brother. I guess they, they do a lot of good stuff, but Paul David Tripp. It's called Age of Opportunity. I've recommended it before. The subtitle is A Biblical Guide to Parenting Teens. 
And I found it indeed a truly beneficial biblical guide for parenting teens to, to shift your perspective that this is an age of adversity to, no, this is an age of opportunity, profound and unprecedented opportunities just to help them mature into adults, to seek the Lord, and to grow up. If you can already just program that one word into your mind, opportunity. When the crisis hits, when your will is not done, when something goes awry, you see trial, adversity, you know, devastation. But if you can see just opportunity and how you respond to shepherd them, already that's going to change your mindset on the parenting years. But for the rest of our time tonight, we're going to explore how to parent teens. We're going to follow the same outline as last time. Uh, Since this is a continuation of last week's study, I'll remind you of that as we go. So let's get into it, starting with uh, changes in your children during this stage. We did that for 0 to 5, 6 to 12, now for the, the 13 to 18 changes in your children during this stage. We change all lifelong, and as adults, we're still changing, but no longer physically as much. The teen years represent really the last rapid stage of childhood development until a, a relative uh, Stability in adulthood, at least physically speaking. But physically, they're still growing. In fact, they're going to make some, some final big leaps. I think I was 13, and it sure felt like I grew about six inches in one summer. I had my growth spurt and became a tall kid. And it happens quickly. And with physical growth, sometimes comes, or, or surely will come, hormonal changes. Going through a little thing called puberty, and they're going to mature into adulthood. It's not something we make too much of or too little of. We just deal with it appropriately. It's, it is something to take into consideration, but it's not the end of the world. Spiritually, they're going to be facing changes like temptation that they never experienced before. Their interests, their desires are forming. They're determining, determining who they are, who they want to be. They're thinking for themselves, gaining independence, testing boundaries. And it can be a time of great spiritual rebellion or... Spiritual formation doesn't have to go bad. It can be a time of of true faith forming. Environmentally, the world is getting a lot bigger. They're starting to see themselves in the greater society. I mean, look, soon they'll be able to vote. Eventually, they'll be able to drive. They'll be able to travel, see new places, enjoy new freedoms, experience new things, oftentimes away from their parents. That's an exciting but frightening proposition. You know, one of the main consequences of all the rapid changes that take place during this time, though, is insecurity. These are all, as we know, typically, not not for all, but for most, for a lot of us, these were awkward years, the the teenage years. I keep pictures of my teenage years closely guarded. You will probably never see them. That time when I had hair down to my shoulders, long, flowing, silky hair down to my shoulders. (laughs) That was middle school. But in this stage, you know, they're not children anymore, but they're not adults at the same time. They're in this awkward in-between zone. They don't know where they fit in. There's one reason why they cling to their peers. It it feels like the only place they they think they truly belong. But they battle insecurity about all sorts of things. Uh, Appearance, clothes, hair, acne, weight, you name it. They desperately desire security and acceptance, just like us adults. But they haven't figured out where to find it. Now, before we move on from this section, I want to add a little more here, because we are, after all, devoting our whole evening to the, the topic of teenagers. We're not quite in a rush. But, you know, it's interesting. You won't find any mention of teenagers in the Bible. And the word teenager is not in the Bible. The whole notion of adolescence is really a modern invention. And we, we, we have quite, are quite familiar with these notions of teenage rebellion and teenage angst. But no, they really did not exist in the ancient world. There are consequences of modernity. In the ancient world, by the time you're a teenager, you already knew your place in the world. There's nothing really much to figure out. Your father's a farmer, you're going to be a farmer. And by age 13, you're already working pretty hard. The line between child and adult was sharp and well-defined. Today, though, that, that line is large and blurry. And it goes into the 20s, and sometimes the 30s. We, where, when are you an adult? We're not sure. Regarding teens, though, 
While the Bible never points them out as a separate class, you know, 13 plus, it does have plenty to say about this category called youth. And you look at the first seven chapters of the book of Proverbs, for example, you see the folly of youth. And that just fits the MO of teens today perfectly. Maybe in the ancient world, that was more that the younger one, but today the height of folly seems to really come out in these teenage years and it fits them perfectly. And this is where, again, I really appreciate the insight from Age of Opportunity, that book, and particularly chapter five, where the author surveys Proverbs and he pinpoints six tendencies of youths or teens. And I find this so helpful just in understanding what they are going through, what they're experiencing, what you once experienced being a teen yourself. Just bringing it back to the front of your mind that you can better understand them and just help them, shepherd them as they face some of these things. So I just wanted to share quickly these six tendencies of youths and just synthesize what they're all about for you. Some tendencies, what characterizes them first? Again, it's not all, but it's just kind of broad brushstroke observations. First, no hunger for wisdom or correction. Not all, but a lot of teens think they're smarter than they are or wiser than they really are. And sometimes they believe their parents are fools. They don't recognize what their parents have learned just by living life. This gets really bad when you have a a teen who actually grows in book learning beyond their parents. Maybe their parents didn't graduate high school and they've already surpassed their parents in learning. They think that makes them wiser. It might make them a little bit smarter in math or science, but as as I trust you know, it does not make them wiser. That's really the mark of, of a fool. They just don't know better. It's going to be up to you to show them God's wisdom, to keep imparting true wisdom to them and see a hunger for wisdom and correction form. Second is a tendency toward legalism. First, no hunger for wisdom or correction. Second, a tendency toward legalism. In the church especially, they'll, they'll learn the system. If they keep your house rules, they'll get what they want. They just got to toe the line and get by. They have to hold out till they turn 18. And some become very adept at keeping the letter of the law. They outwardly become or appear very obedient, even when it comes to like the spiritual disciplines. But their obedience has ulterior motives, or rather, if it has ulterior motives, it's really no better than legalism. Self-righteousness can easily form in such teens. And you're going to have to show them now, not just the letter of the law is what is expected, but the spirit of the law, that they are to obey you and really the Lord from a heart that loves him and wants to please him for this is right. You have to show them love and obedience from the heart. Third, a tendency to be unwise in their choice of companions. A tendency to be unwise in their choice of companions. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. A bad company corrupts good morals. And a truer words were not spoken. That We all know how true that is. And this is a huge pitfall among youths. I was victim of it, guilty of it myself back in the day. I mean, they're naive, they're unwise. So they, they can't really discern bad company. They find a, a group of kids who just accept them. So they find that place of acceptance and security, and that's all they're looking for. So they'll just enter that, that group without the discernment that, oh, wait, they might be taking me way further than I wanted to go. And uh, it's not a good thing. But at the same time, they can be prideful, <clears throat> thinking that, well, they're beyond being influenced. They're the ones who will do the influencing. That They're, they're good enough, and it never works out. That's not how it works. And they just don't have the discernment. And this is going to be a huge problem that we'll want to help shepherd them through. A tendency to be unwise in their choice of companions. A little bit more on that later. Number four, a susceptibility to sexual temptation. Susceptibility to sexual temptation. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, flee from youthful lusts. And look, there are some lusts or desires that plague younger people more than older people for various reasons. There's something we can call, like Paul called, youthful lusts. And the father in the book of Proverbs has much to say about this. And look, as their hormones come online, this becomes a bigger and bigger deal. It's something not to be afraid of, but to understand and 
be ready to provide biblical counsel. I mean, if you simply listen to the world on sexuality, you're not going to get any of the right biblical perspective. Yet parents fear having the talk or any talk with their teens. It's easier just ignore it, leave it to the school or the culture or their peers to talk about these things. That's pretty much the worst thing you could possibly do. Leave it to the world, the culture, their peers, the school to have those conversations. That, that's not good. You got to get past the embarrassment and address these issues. Because poor choices in the teen years can alter one's course of life for the rest of their life, as you know. You'll need to help them here. Number five, an absence of eschatological perspective. An absence of eschatological perspective. And that just means, that's just fancy words for saying they live like there's no tomorrow. They're living for the here and the now. An absence of eschatological perspective. They, they don't live in light of eternity. It's rare to find a teen who's very reflective on the past. They don't care about history in school. Or the future, their future. They, they don't even think about it. They're just concerned about the present. The here and the now is all that matters. That's why they're so caught up in the, the trials of the teenage years. You look back at those trials, you think, oh, come on. Like, it's not a big deal. You won't even talk to half of these people in fact, 99% of these people in high school, you'll never see again. You'll never talk to again. Their opinion doesn't matter at all. You have the perspective of time because you've seen how these things play out. This, this is not a big deal. But if, if they're truly caught up in the moment, that's, that's everything. That's, that's all that matters. If they lack that perspective of past and future. It's just part of the folly of youth. Only the wise number their days and live in light of eternity, in light of the long-term future. And so part of your goal is just help lifting their thoughts from the temporal and the mundane to the eternal and the spiritual. We'll talk more about that as well, but helping them think more of, of the eternal and the spiritual. Lastly, number six, a lack of heart awareness. A lack of heart awareness. I mean, especially if they're still unregenerate. But they have no knowledge of their own heart. They don't really reflect on themselves or introspect. They don't know why they do the things they do. Teens especially often act on impulse, not recognizing the lusts and the desires that are secretly ruling their hearts, taking them away from God. And so it's going to be up to you to help them think more deeply about themselves, not just punishing them when they do something wrong, but using that as an opportunity to uncover what led them to do that. Why did they make that choice? What, what's going on inside? Where they've exchanged the, the worship of God for something else. This is going to be part of your task. These are just some of the tendencies and changes your teens will experience during these years. If you're here listening as an adult, you should be able to relate because you were there. Been there, done that for some of you. It's been a while, but you were once there. You have been there. You know firsthand what we've been talking about. And it's so beneficial just to think deeply about this, this stage of childhood. Reflect on some of the challenges they face, the experiences. Understand them better, that you might be able to shepherd them better. Yeah, culture changes, and each generation feels disconnected from the new because of cultural changes, but, but the heart doesn't change. How we respond to life and circumstances doesn't change. The, the scripture guides us with timeless principles on how to reach any person, any stage. So just because you're not up to speed on streaming or influencers doesn't mean you can't reach your teen. You can. Just be equipped with what the word guides you. Now, before talking about uh, the corresponding changes in your training objectives that you need to make. That's, that's the next section here. I'm actually going to next insert really kind of a bonus section that we didn't cover in previous lessons. But uh, changes in you during this stage. Changes in you during this stage. Speaking of the parents. It's something we did reference in passing last week that you know, one factor that makes parenting a bit harder is that in addition to your children constantly changing, uh, you too are constantly changing as you act and react to them. You'll find yourself changing in your actions, your attitudes, not always for the better. 
It's not like you turn 18 and your personality is locked in place for the rest of your life. We, we continue to change in response to life and circumstances and adversity. And for a lot of parents, the teenage years is a form of adversity that can bring out the best or the worst in them and change them for the better or the worse. But presented with difficult parenting circumstances, you might find yourself saying things you never thought you would say or doing things you never thought you would do. And many parents seem to face this during the teenage years. They're just not perhaps prepared as shepherds to help their teens navigate all these hidden reefs in the shallows as they're launching out into deep waters. And they themselves as parents just aren't trained to navigate themselves. Their teens toss and turn as a result, and it can bring out the worst in mom or dad. Both need grace. You need to show grace to your kids, to your spouse, to yourself. God is gracious with us. But we need to address this. Be on guard against this. You are still the parent. You can't control your teens, but you can and you must control yourself. Your actions and especially your reactions to them. You also have to examine yourself. Remind yourself whose agenda you're serving. Yours or God's? The right answer should be God's. You're on God's errands. You're just trying to steward these children according to his will. It's almost a guarantee. Let's just say it. It's a guarantee. Your, your children will eventually bring out the worst in you. They will bring some sin out in you. It's not their fault as if they're placing something in you that wasn't already there. They're not making you do anything or me. It's just the sin that was already in our flesh that comes out through circumstances. They're just bringing to the surface some heart idols that are already implanted in us. But in a, se- in a sense, that can be a mercy. As they're exposed, you can now identify them and crucify them, and get rid of them, and and turn from them. But let yourself be challenged and changed through these parenting years for the better. If it brings something out of your character, let it come to the surface. Take it before the Lord in in, humility and repentance. Be honest with your children. They're growing up. They're going to learn you're sinners too. You can relate to them now, just sinner to sinner. Before, with young children, it's like, it's like we're like God to them. Like we never do any wrong because we're always correcting them. We're never correcting ourselves. But as they get old, they learn pretty quick. Like, wait a second. You disobeyed here. You did wrong here. You did that here. It's like, well, yeah, let me let you in a little secret. Mom and dad are sinners too. We repent daily. But you're bringing them to an understanding of, of repentance, of how we deal with ongoing sin uh, in Christ. That, that's to come. Overall, though, just be more aware of how you are acting and reacting to your children, especially during the teenage years. You, as the parents, set the tone. If you are ruled by fear, anxiety, anger, and irritation, you're going to see them as a, as a burden, not a blessing. You'll see them as opponents to your will. And when their will comes into conflict with yours, you're going to try and overcome them by various unbiblical means. Yelling, threatening, getting angry, withdrawing love, ignoring, and so on. You'll overreact. You'll throw away all their clothes because you don't like how they're dressing. You'll revoke their driving privileges for a whole year. You'll ground them till they turn 18. But as you're being ruled by the idols of your heart and your flesh, do you expect anything different to come out of your teens? No, all that will happen is your relationship with them will suffer and their rebellion will increase. But instead, if you can be challenged just to walk by faith in Christ, just rely on his power because we're insufficient for these things. But he can use you to minister to your children. You can show them in word, in deed, grace and truth and love. This is where no matter what happens, you're, you're talking with them, not at them. You're using questions and conversations to draw out the thoughts and intentions of their own hearts. You're speaking to them like a person, not an object. You continue to patiently impart wisdom, minister gospel truth to them. Key word again, patiently. You correct them often, but a spirit of gentleness and love and forgiveness and grace. You maintain a relationship of affection, quality time and quantity time. Ultimately, you're just, you're trying to walk by the Spirit. You're trying to parent by the Spirit. And if you do that consistently, wouldn't you expect your kids to better respond? Even if they don't, though, remember, you're not in control of that. You're not accountable for that. This is just simply what God expects of you as the parents to parent his ways by the Spirit 
This is good. This is right for you. And so aspire to grow. One of the best things you can do to better parent your teens is just to better parent yourself. Right? Just parent yourself. Grow in Christ-likeness. Put on Christ. Now find that God is a way of blessing his people who commit to seeking first his kingdom, his righteousness. You see some, some real fruit there. God is gracious to his people. All right, that was just kind of an aside that I felt compelled to throw in there. For your sake, for my sake, us parents need to be humble and just desiring to grow in this task. Speaking of though, now we can transition to that, the next category. This little outline is we're considering how to apply some of the principles and practices we've learned about parenting to the various stages of childhood. Next would be changes in your training objectives during this stage. Changes in your training objectives during the teen years. Parenting naturally becomes more complex during the teen years because your children are becoming more complex. In the early childhood years, we're more often after the behavior of our children. We're trying to basically break their rebellious spirit and produce, uh, replace it with a, a gentle spirit that is obedient and submissive to parental authority, ready to receive further instruction and shaping. And in the elementary years, that shaping really kicks into drive because now we're not just looking for behavior, but character springing from a right heart. But in the teen years, all this stuff really just kicks into overdrive and the pendulum's pendulum pendulum swings even further over to their heart, from the behavior to the heart. Now we're, we're going full bore after their hearts. Yeah, behavior matters. We are not ignoring behavior by any stretch. We'll deal with it, but it now is always going to take us right over to what it's revealing about their hearts, because that's, that's our battleground. That's, that's where we're spending our attention. It's what we're trying to win. Ask yourself as a parent, what are you trying to do? with your instruction and your discipline? What are you trying to win? You're just trying to win their behavior or you're trying to win their heart by God's grace. But some parents fall into the pitfall of they're just trying to win the behavior of their kids, their teens. They just want obedient, compliant, straight-laced teens who don't rebel. Go off to college and be good people. Like they just, that's, what, that's just what they want. And they take a, a straight jacket approach to the teen years. They smother them with even more rules and regulations. They allow them very little freedom or responsibility, all justified by keeping them godly. Otherwise, they're going to go off and bad things will happen. They have to keep the leash real tight to make sure they're good kids. And outwardly, these kids will look like good kids, even godly kids. They will appear like good, young, little Christians. But sometimes, not always, but sometimes such parents overlook the heart when they're doing these things. They they never actually get around to shepherding the hearts of their children. They're not really having heart-level conversations. They're merely just controlling and manipulating their behavior to achieve a certain outcome. And look, these kids, they're not going to go to a party and get drunk. They're not going to stay out late. They're not going to have bad friends or get in trouble. They're not going to do drugs. Do you know why? Because their parents won't let them. The leash is too tight. They're not allowed to do these things. They're in a straitjacket. They have no opportunity to do these things. And therefore, they look like great kids. It's one little problem here. It's called college or just adulthood. Maybe they skip college, but just adulthood. Recall, I was a college pastor for four or five years. I saw this each year. Graduating high schoolers came into my group, and some were like this, some weren't, but some fit this bill exactly. You know what happens when your teen leaves the nest? Try as you might, but your straight jacket just doesn't fit anymore. Just, you want to put it on them, but it's just they've outgrown it. It doesn't fit. They're out of the home. So this is especially the case when they leave the home, whether they're college or an apartment. They just they leave the home. Functionally, you have very little power to control their behavior anymore. And so what then? They have no more curfew. They can watch R-rated movies. They can drink. They can hang out with whoever they want. All final decisions now pretty much are up to them. You can still try and manipulate them with like rent money or something like that, but at the end of the day, they're going to do what they want to do. And so, yeah, that's the question. 
what will they do when they leave the nest? And the answer is, they will do whatever they want to do in their heart of hearts. We are creatures of desire, and the strongest desire will win. If their hearts have never been shepherded and reached by the gospel, well, you know what they're going to do. This is where many kids, Christian kids, go astray. Those college years. In reality, they were never converted. They were just outwardly made to look like good Christian kids, but their hearts were captured by many other desires. And as soon as they got to college, I mean, they cast off that straitjacket real fast. And that, they shed that Christian veneer real fast. And they just become who they always were. Understand that. They just become who they always were. They become on the outside who they always were on the inside. They just never had chance to express it. But this is why so many young people leave the faith during college. It's because they never really were in the faith. And they were merely relying on their parents' faith. They went to church because their parents made them. And that's pretty much that. So yeah, you can win the short game. You can totally control their behavior if you try hard enough and assert yourself enough and manipulate enough during the teen years. You can do it. But you risk losing the long game, especially if you neglect the heart. Far better to play the long game, which does not neglect or ignore their behavior, but uses it as a window to get to their heart and to to shepherd and reason with them in their heart. The long game has as its clear objective winning their hearts. God, by grace, must make their hearts alive. But as for us, we're just going to do our part, which is something he tells us to do, and that's to weed, to till, to sow, to water, to feed, all at the heart level of our children. So now we can ask, with this in mind, what are your training objectives during the teenage years? What kind of goals do you have in mind for them? You know, ask more parents, or rather ask most parents in the world what their objectives are during the teen years. And they pretty much will just say they want their teen to avoid the big four. Going to jail, getting pregnant, doing drugs, dropping out of school. It's like, just avoid the big four, and we're good here, right? They've reduced their goals that low. We have those goals too, but ours are much bigger, namely forming hearts for God who obey him because they want to. They don't need any rules. They don't need any straitjacket. You're free. Do as you please, but their hearts have been reached where now they do the right thing because they want to. That's the goal. We'll trust God's grace to make it, to get them all the way there, but we got to do our part, as he calls us to do, to shepherd their hearts. So with that in mind, let me suggest four specific objectives you can have in mind to guide your parenting during this stage, all directed at their heart, their mind, their soul, their, their inner person. Some tangible objectives, though, for the teen years. There's many, but first, becoming spiritually minded. Becoming spiritually minded. We've moved beyond just teaching them the basic facts about who God is, like a five-year-old. Yeah, okay, we're we're, we're building them up here. Now, kicking into drive, overdrive, becoming spiritually minded. As I said before, teens are notorious for being extremely carnal. They just don't see the spiritual, literally and metaphorically. They're inundated with with the physical world and all it has to offer them. Their eyes are being opened to the realities of the physical world. And so they all but ignore the spiritual world. Relatedly, like we said, they seem to only pay attention to the present. Issues of the past and future are ignored. They live for the here and now. And so they just have little time for the things of God. Maybe when they're older, they'll pay attention to all this Christianity stuff, but they're a little busy right now. The problem, though, is that the spiritual world is real. Their souls are real. Sin is real. God is real. Satan is real. Spiritual warfare is real. All these things are real, and that should vastly impact how you live and the decisions you make in life. You ignore them at your own peril. Scripture gives us this wartime mentality that we're always at war against sin in the flesh. But you have teens, sometimes they're convinced like, like there's no battle. There's no war going on. I'm at, I'm at peace. I'm just living after my pleasures. And they're like the children in Pinocchio getting carted off to Pleasure Island They think they're on their way to their best life while they're really just being enslaved and they don't know it. So as a parent, 
One of your objectives is just to help elevate their thinking, helping them see spiritual realities. Set their minds on things above. Yes, hopefully you've been already doing this throughout the previous childhood years, but even if they, they show less interest in the things of God now, just continue to expose them daily to it. That you're, you are praying with them and still reading with them. You are talking to them about the things of the Lord. You're discussing what you learned at church. Maybe, yeah, that they're at the place where they wouldn't go if you didn't drag them to church. Well, you're going to persist anyway, but then you're going to engage them in conversation. What, what do you think that meant? What did you learn? Just continue to ingrain in them the truths of God and his word. And hopefully as they encounter God more and more through you and through scripture, they'll come to know him and come to fear him. But you have to have as a target elevating their thinking to the spiritual. And related to that, secondly, gaining the fear of the Lord. Gaining the fear of the Lord. Throughout all childhood, we've been trying to impart God's wisdom to our children. But don't forget this. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's no true wisdom without the fear of the Lord. It's not fear in the sense of terror or dread, but fear in the sense of reverence and respect and worship. As we help our children open their eyes to spiritual truth and the God of the Bible, we, we just then pray they, they'll see him for who he really is and rightly respond And it's only this deep-seated fear, genuine fear of God that that will lead them to make right decisions. By the way, the fear of the God, uh, fear of God when you know him and you hear his gospel immediately translates into the love of God at the same time. This reverence of this God who is just but loving at the same time. But it's that holy reverential fear of God that leads us to seek his will and not our own. We become convinced He's glory and his ways are best and I want them. Now, of course, so you need to be modeling the fear of the Lord for them as well. Do they, do they see that you are captivated by the glory of God? Or is God kind of an afterthought? He's not that glorious. Mom and dad rarely think of him or talk about him or seem to care about him. Do they see you living in light of this awesome God only on Sunday or from Sunday to Sunday? Even the times when you fall short, do you show them how we get back up and pursue it because we love this Lord? Do you reverence God in your choices, seeking to be holy as he is holy? Whatever you expect in them, you first must have. And number three, overcoming the fear of man. Overcoming the fear of man. I personally believe now that the single greatest hurdle to true faith that all teens must overcome in our present generation is this, the fear of man. Because as you know, we're living in a society that's turning more and more against the Lord and the things of the Lord, the people of the Lord. And so that just means the cost to actually following Jesus has gone up. That is not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing. That purifies the church and its witness. But just like Christ told his first disciples, Back then, the cost was real high to follow Jesus, like your life. In Matthew 10, he warned them, this would be hard. It's not going to be easy to follow the Lord. It's not going to be culturally accepted to follow Christ. Most of American history, it's been culturally accepted, okay, even applauded to follow Christ, to call yourself a Christian. It was not originally the case. It was not socially acceptable to be a Christian. And it's becoming a little bit more and more like that, right? But this makes it hard, especially for teens who are still figuring these things out. They're going to have a hard road ahead of them. It's not fun to be hated by all because of Jesus. Only true faith will endure that. But what helps is fearing God more than men, knowing that we don't answer to the world. We only answer to God. He will judge justly in the end. So it still starts with the fear of the Lord. But look, we know that teens are so caught up in this desperate desire to be accepted. Many adults too, by the way, they they never get beyond that. This desperate desire to be accepted. And therefore they struggle with the threat of rejection. I mean, they're just now entering this bigger world. They don't want to be immediately cast out. They don't want to lose their friends. They don't want to be kicked out of school. They don't want to be canceled. These fears 
are totally understandable. Completely understandable. You just have to help them see it as God sees it for what's true. You as the parent must actively shepherd them on how to respond to the pressures of our world. Give them perspective. You have time under your belt. Give them actual perspective on the value of being accepted by the wicked versus rejoicing with the righteous. One thing's true. You just can't hand your kids over to this culture unaware, unassuming, unprepared. You have to prepare them to face this world we're living in, fearing God over man. You know, regarding acceptance though, especially in this twisted world of social media, you have to show them how, how vain and futile it is to win the world's favor. This is like, read the book of Ecclesiastes with them, how, how life lived apart from God is just so vain, so futile. Nothing shows up more than social media. There's such an emptiness there in the end. Really, at the end of the day, the only way to be truly loved by the world is to totally sell out the Lord, like Judas. They'll accept you, but we can't do that. Rather, the only acceptance that that they really need, that their soul longs for, is actually from God. He's enough to fulfill them. You have to show them that. That doesn't mean we're thereafter condemned to live lonely, isolated lives, because God thereafter blesses us with the church where we can find something we never knew before and could not know before. It's deeper than friendship. It's fellowship. We're partaking in life together with Christ. Bonds that run deeper than blood family. This oneness in the body of Christ. They don't know that. Young, if they're not truly converted, they're, just, they're being dragged to church. But if their eyes can be open to what God has done in his people... That's going to be a huge aspiration. Just help your teens understand that the wicked are not actually their friends. They're not to be feared. They're not to be followed. And the longing they have to belong is meant to be fulfilled by God and the house of God. Lastly here, number four, a fourth training objective. Relatedly, these all kind of build on one another, but living in the world, not of the world. Living in the world? Not of the world. Look, they're growing up. Try as you might, unless you keep them in a bunker their whole lives, they're going to be thrust out into this world. And they're going to have to function as part of a larger society. And yes, we need to prepare them for that, not just fearing it, but preparing them for it. The recourse here is not to invest in a bunker or go live in a monastery in the desert. Especially as servants of Christ, we are to let his light shine in the world. We are to witness to this lost and dying world. We can't, we can't isolate for that. Still though, help your kids get right how to live in this world. Specifically, how to navigate our culture in the context of America. 21st century America. Now at this point, for the sake of time, I can only give you a passing reference. But I want to again point you to that book, Age of Opportunity. If you're taking notes, specifically chapter 9, one of the, one of the best chapters. It, it's a must read. Where Tripp shows the pitfalls of two typical responses to the culture among Christians. The wrong responses, I might add. That of total rejection or total assimilation. It's the two extremes of the pendulum and how we respond to the culture. And again, I can only make a brief mention of it here, but some have a rejection, isolation response to the culture where they think that to maintain godliness, they have to boycott every single aspect of our culture. That might be, for example, all movies, all modern music, all TV shows are banned, except for you know a few Christian ones. Attending public school is anathema. Even hanging out with non-Christians is a rarity. These families live in very small tight, guarded Christian bubbles, and nothing unchristian gets in. No one unchristian gets in. They even participate in second-degree separation. Even other Christians at their church who are a little more worldly than them are outside their bubble. They won't let them play with their kids. Other families, though, are the opposite, and they believe there's nothing wrong with totally assimilating into the culture. There's little discernible difference between their family and a non-Christian family. When it comes to the things they do or what parts of the culture they partake, their kids look and dress and act pretty much like 
any non-Christian kid. They watch a lot of TV. They engage in tons of after-school and public school activities. But you see, there are pitfalls in both of these extremes. Neither are ultimately compatible with our mission to live like Christ and reach the lost at the same time. Look, yes, there are very wicked aspects of our culture that you must protect your children from until they're of age where they'll be accountable for their own decisions. But scripture does not advocate a throw the baby out with the bathwater approach. Again, I can't synthesize a whole chapter. If this strikes a chord with you, go read that chapter nine. It really is excellent. But it boils down to teaching your teens to understand and interact with the culture redemptively. To understand, interpret, and react to the culture redemptively. You know, in short, Matthew 5, 13 through 16 calls us to be salt and light. You know that. Do you know what that means? Being salt is a reference to being a preservative. God wants us, the church, to be a preserving force, a preservative force, keeping the society from rapidly decaying into moral evil. And so that family who's all assimilation, they've lost their saltiness. There's nothing distinct about them that that shows the world any different, any difference to following Christ. There's nothing distinct about how they live that they're not being salty. On the flip side, though, the light represents our witness to the world that we are to give the world the testimony of Christ. That family whose all rejection is just hiding away in their bubble, they've put a basket over their light. They've hidden the light. It can't be seen. You just have to strike a careful balance between these two extremes. We are to be both salt and light in the world, not of the world. Teach your teens to do the same. I'll leave it there because we're rapidly running out of time, but I will once again point you to chapter 9, a whole chapter. I might one day preach on it, but it's just a really, I think, provocative but biblical understanding of the culture when too many will take either of these extremes. Just I'm all in or I'm all out. We have to rightly divide the culture and how we respond, keeping ourselves unstained from evil, uh, but uh, navigating what we have and appreciating what can be accepted with thankfulness as well. All right, there's more to say there. That'll suffice. These are some key training objectives during the teen years. All the while, as you continue to minister the gospel to their hearts, that goes without saying. At the end of the day, what we want to see form in them, above all, is a heart for God. That's not something you can give to them, but you can lead them right up to the very door of the kingdom, the very door, and just pray that they enter in by God's grace. That's what we must do. Let's finish up now with one final section to parallel our previous teachings. It's changes in your parenting tasks during this stage. Changes in your parenting tasks. There are many tasks involved in parenting. And with teens, it might be taking them to a soccer game, dropping them off at a friend's house, helping them with their homework. That's all goes without, that all goes without saying. We're still just narrowing in on the two main positive tasks parents are given in Scripture, of course. Summarized in Ephesians 6.4, to raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we're just focusing on two spiritual tasks, discipline and instruction. And what that, what that looks like, how those take shape, changes as your children get older. And that's why we're, we're doing this. We're trying to discuss what it looks like. We've done the early years, the elementary years now with the teens. What might this look like? Let's add a few thoughts here. First, with discipline. And teens still need correction. But as they get older, it's less likely to come in the form of spanking. I, I don't think I know a parent who still spanks their teen. But like that's, that's fitting because our objectives have elevated we're no longer trying to simply associate sting with, this, with sin. Remember that? That was one of the goals, the main goals of spanking, physically spanking, to associate a sting with their sin and rebellion because they don't have the minds to process anything deeper. We'll use a, a little physical sting to show them the way the wicked is hard, physically. But especially now that they're teens, I mean, remember, 
We're not trying to win behavior, but the heart. We're after the heart. We're looking for a deeper sting than a spank can give them. You can't, you can't reach the heart through a spank. We have to use words, conviction, God's word. Remember again, the purpose of discipline. It's a rescue mission. We're trying to keep them sensitive to their own sin, that they might receive the gospel, but also just show them the way of the wicked is hard. We're trying to help them avoid a hard and trouble-filled life full of consequences, both in this life and the life to come. Speaking of consequences, though, isn't that what happens to us when we sin or do wrong as adults in the real world? We, we just get consequences. Throughout life, if you rebel against authority, if you commit serious wrongdoing, the authorities won't just spank you and let you go. Right? What happens? Instead, your boss will fire you, your school will expel you, your city will fine you, the police will arrest you. You just get consequences, certain consequences for your actions. And we're trying to raise up our children in wisdom, pushing the foolishness out of their hearts so that they would avoid some truly life-changing consequences like jail time. But by the teen years, it's appropriate for correction to start taking the form of reasonable consequences, consequences for their actions. That's a way to train them like, well, if you're going to persist in rebellion, it's what you have to expect when you leave the home. It's, it's going to be worse consequences. I'll give you some now. If you're still facing serious rebellion, outright defiance, and high-handed sin, you'd meet those with more and more serious consequences. I still would have to caution you against just purely using bribery or deprivation, giving them things or taking things away to control behavior. Because like we said last time, it's just feeding into the greed and materialism that's already in their hearts. But at the same time, as a, a tool of training, sometimes it's appropriate because look, that happens in life. You make poor choices. Your car might be repossessed or taken away. Your home might be foreclosed. Talk about consequences. So some discernment is called for in, in what to do here. But perhaps a better route is loss of privileges. That the freedom and the privileges they so desperately desire should come with proven responsibility and humble submission to parental authority. Hopefully that's something you've established by now, but you can continue to establish, uh, not just by laying down the law, but having conversation with them. You want them to be pleased, to enjoy life, to be happy. You want them to have freedoms and greater responsibilities. But like the way of the wicked is hard. You have to, to seek the Lord. But at the very least, you have to heed mom and dad's parental authority because until you're out of the home, you are still under our authority. You can't come to that understanding. You can't expect us to give you all the freedom and privileges in the world. But overall, correction in the teen years, it's not all as in perhaps not often going to take a physical form. It's mostly going to take now a verbal form. You're trying to go from their behavior to their hearts, and you just can't do that without words, without a conversation. So really, if you have teens and you want to discipline, it's time to learn how to rebuke, how to reprove, how to correct, biblically speaking. The Bible talks about that. How do you issue a rebuke, biblically? Like spanking is something that should never be done in anger. And such rebukes or verbal corrections are, are means of love. You're trying to show them their sin. But the hopes of changing both their outward behavior, but also addressing their inner heart desires. For example, correction with teens should not look like bursting into the room, declaring what rules have been broken, and then just meeting out punishments and slamming the door behind you. Just kind of, you've come down from the mountain, you've laid down the law, you've issued judgments, and off you go. No, if they've transgressed, they've done something foolish. Maybe they flunked a test because they failed to study. They scratched the car because they weren't paying attention. They had an outburst of anger because you accidentally bleached their favorite shirt. Well, correction for whatever sin or wrongdoing should start with a conversation. You have to learn to speak with them, not just at them. You're going to have to ask probing questions with the goal of, like we said before, drawing out 
the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Like, why are you so angry? Why does this make you so mad? Help them explore their own sin. Help them recognize temptation, how they fall prey to it. And see if they can grow in self-awareness where they convict themselves of their own wrongdoing and sin. That's the ultimate goal here. You don't have to just always point the finger, but through gentle shepherding, you're trying to help them point the finger at themselves, recognizing their own wrong, convicting themselves. You're not always going to come at them accusing and then cross-examining, but discussing what happened, what should have happened, what does God expect, what should you do now? Look, you're, you're dealing nearly with young adults. You can expect them to respond to all this like adults, where sometimes they'll humble themselves and they'll receive your correction, but other times they won't. They'll remain in pride and get defensive, just like adults. This is where skill, wisdom, and patience comes in. And look, spanking is so much easier. It's just so much easier. It is hard to appeal, to reprove, to rebuke, to restore, to correct, to peacemake, to reason. The list goes on. It's, it's hard work to shepherd the heart, to get beyond behavior, and to, to expose their own hearts. It's, it's hard, and it takes skill. Like we said before, it's a skill position. You need wisdom and knowledge. And I hope, at the very least, since we're not covering everything, this spurs you to get it, to acquire more, to grow in your skill. We could spend many lessons going even further on the practical implementation of just this right here, verbal correction. We're not. This is just a crash course. But because of time, I'll give you yet another book plug. If you want to take this further and learn more about this very thing, how do we issue verbal correction? How do we peacemake in the home? Well, one book that's only about that. It's called Peacemaking for Families by Ken Sandy. You guys have heard me plug that book, Peacemaker, all the time. I really value it when it comes to conflict resolution. Did an edition that's meant for conflict resolution in the home, and it's really great for correction in the home. How do you peacemake in the family? Peacemaking for families? There you go. That'll take you much further and help you practically implement this type of correction. They still need correction. It will take different shape. We have to, to grow into that and learn to correct with conversations and the power of God's word, appealing to God's word to bear conviction in their spirit and to produce repentance and change, Lord willing. We'll finish up here. The last thing we'll talk about is instruction. How your parenting tasks change in these years. It's a little bit on discipline. Here's a little bit on instruction. In the teen years, children still need instruction as well. In fact, they need more of it. Not the ABCs, but this is prime time for them to take everything they've learned about the Lord and the things of the Lord and now actually figure out how do, you, how do you do it? How do you put it all into practice? It's not so easy as, as they experience all these new slices of life. How do they do this? You have to continue to help them. Biblical instruction of your kids through the teen years, yes, should still have some formal element where you're reading the Bible to them, with them. You're studying together, listening to sermons together, family worship, some formal element of pursuing the knowledge of God. Yes, you keep that up. But in these years, the school of life becomes your predominant classroom. We learned weeks ago in Deuteronomy 6 that God designed the family to be the primary vehicle to pass on the knowledge of the Lord, not the school or the government or even the church. The family is the vehicle to pass on the knowledge of the Lord. And that instruction is not just in a classroom. It's in life, the school of life. You are living life together with your teens. So, therefore, help them act, react, and interact with the world around them according to God's word. Making choices in accordance to God's word and wisdom. You can just make all their choices for them still. You know, put on the straight jacket, make all their choices for them, or... You could help them make their own choices, but on top of God's word, help them go to the word, learn it for themselves, study it for themselves, see its wisdom. Now make your choice. What would you do now? Look, in teen years, it just means conversations become key. No more monologue. It's, it's time for dialogue. Not tirades, but discussions. 
You have to engage them. You might respond that your teen doesn't seem to want to talk to you about anything. And that may be the case. Perhaps your teen has truly figured all of life out by the ripe age of 15. They've surpassed you. They know everything. But I would say two things. First is be persistent. Be persistent to talk to them, to engage in them, to get past the awkward silence. My teen years, I, I went to like radio silence. I got very quiet with my parents. I didn't want to talk to them at all. But you have to persist to get through that. Here's a quote from Tripp's book that I really appreciate. Let me just read it for you. Speaking of this, he says, Don't settle for grunts, groans, no eye contact, silences, and yeses and nos that are given without explanation. Be positive, friendly, and encouraging, but be persistent. Few teenagers will draw you out. Often teenagers have many questions and much to say, but they'll say nothing. Unless given the opportunity to talk with someone who really does appear to care. Seek out your teenagers and patiently engage them in conversation. Don't take personal offense at their resistance, but remind them of your love and commitment. Make sure that they understand that the conversation you're having is not about catching them in the wrong and dispensing punishment without helping them to identify and do what is right, end quote. In short, they they still need instruction. They need counsel. They need wisdom. You have to persist in trying to reach and engage them through the awkward silence and, and the unbreakable silence. Secondly, though, and perhaps your teen has gone silent because he or she doesn't feel safe in talking to you about things like Tripp alluded to. All you can do here is just make sure you are communicating graciously and righteously, positively, and also that you are not provoking them to anger or exasperating them. This might be a consequence of that. That was lesson six, I believe. Go back and listen to lesson six. If you're falling into that, the one negative prohibition, do not exasperate your children. If you fall into that, well, yeah, why would they want to talk to you? All they get from you is hardship. Uh, make sure you're approachable by not exasperating them. They know you're on their side. You're maybe the only one that truly wants what is best for them in life. Why wouldn't they want to talk to that person? Say, for example, one day your teen catches you off guard and says, she's thinking about dating. You could just get angry, lose your temper, yell and say, zero chance. There's no chance you're going to start dating under my house. Or you could see this as an opportunity to help her think it through for herself. You could start studying God's word together, gaining a perspective on what God says about relationships, about marriage. You could help them see that if marriage is not a foreseeable option in reality, dating is just going to put them right in the line of fire of serious temptation they, they likely won't overcome. But you just appeal to them for wisdom. Appeal to them to make decisions. Under your authority, you'll still have final say, and you might choose at that point to make that final say and say no, but at least you can appeal to them from God's word. Just again, remember, in a few short years, they'll be gone, and they'll be doing whatever they want to do, just like you did when you grew up and left the house. This is not the time to, to keep the straitjacket tightly laced but teach them how to think, how to make decisions based on God's word and wisdom. You want instruction? There it is. You're just trying to teach them through these conversations, through how you live, how to think, how to make decisions in life. You can't prepare them for every decision, but you can teach them how to fish. You can show them how to think based on God's word and wisdom. Make that their compass Hopefully you've established that through years of imparting God's word to them and show them how to live God's way on their own. And then when they leave, you can at least have some, some peace and confidence that, and trust that, that they will seek to do what is right. They might stumble and fall just like you do, but at least they'll be pointed at in the Lord's way. In all, with both discipline and instruction, as they get older, it's just, it's just time to start releasing some control. They're ultimately in God's hands. You're still going to make some choices for them. Yes. But as they get closer to that 18 mark, start, start loosening the leash a little bit. Give them some play. Let them see where they go with it. They're still on the leash. They'll come home, but see where they go with this little ounce of freedom. Maybe they run off into trouble, but at least it takes place while they're still in the home that you can see it, respond to it, shepherd them through it, help them to grow from it. You know, your authority 
over their lives is rapidly diminishing. And one day it will go all the way down to zero. But this is now prime time to build something new called influence. Remember that from lesson two or so? These are years to build influence. You're not always going to be their provider. You will not always be their authority. But now you can be something for them that will last the rest of your life. And that's counselor. Be diligent in just giving them your time, yourself, your love. It's going to come back to love. But you're going to overwhelm them with the fact that you love them uh, beyond all. This is what eventually brings 20-somethings back to mom and dad. Because they rebel. They go off. Maybe they're prodigal. Maybe they weren't even raised in the church like myself. But they go off to the world. And they, they begin to a lot of trouble. But they quickly find out that, that the wicked friends they had, they're not actually true friends. They dump them pretty quick. You know, they move on. They get hurt by those in the world. And they eventually realize, wait, I think mom and dad are maybe the only people at this stage that actually care about me, that actually love me. And they, they eventually return seeing the wisdom of their parents. But they have to learn the hard way, sometimes by going the way of the prodigal. Learn wisdom, though, and teach your kids wisdom to learn the easy way. And not that you're perfect, but that as a believer, equipped with God's word, you know the way. Show them that. Persist, and they just might emerge from these teen years as a friend. God can and will use you, but a resounding theme, just you continue to be faithful. Just continue to be faithful to do all that you can to raise them up. Well, there's technically a little more I wanted to cover here. Namely, we didn't get to the question about how to discern salvation in your children. And then when should they get baptized? So technically, this crash course is over as far as we really wanted to go. But I think I will include a brief, you know, 10, 15 minute addendum next week to answer that final question and maybe a few final thoughts. So we'll save it for then, but we are out of time. So we'll finish there. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we, we thank you for your wisdom, your perspective on life uh, this evening that we've gained from your word and reflecting on all that we've studied about your word in the past, and especially as it's applied to the teenage years, which we've all been through, those of us here as adults and as parents. We know, though, Lord, your word is sufficient for all things. That includes parenting the teen, and that includes reaching the teen. And, and it's actually an exciting time because their, their lights are coming on. Their brains are firing at all cylinders. They're thinking about the world. Their, their hearts are ready. This is time for the word to be sowed. It's, it's a chance, an opportunity for their character to form if they come to true faith and to really follow you and never turn back. And, and then find the joy and the peace and the security that their peers are desperately grasping for but will never find. They will only find heartache and loss and sorrow and depression because there's nothing in the world apart from you. Life under the sun, apart from the Son of God, is pure vanity and futility. Show them that. Help us to show them that as well, Lord. Help us parents to be faithful, just holding out life to them, holding out wisdom. It's all we can do. May we just be profoundly faithful and excelling still more, training them up. And we pray for your grace that they would respond. But bless us in all that we've learned. May we put it now into practice as we uh, seek to return these children to you as stewards found faithful. So be with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.